Something strange is happening on the Dying Message podcast. We love detective anime, but today we've got something more, something different, something extra. I'm joined by my partner Michael Savitsky and our guests Steve Kleinedler and Harrison Scantling to cover the 2005 gay detective film Third Man Out, presenting Dying Message Extra. How extra, you ask? If a medium pizza is 12 inches and a large pizza is 14 inches, our podcast today would be a whole 30 inches in diameter. That's a lot of podcast. No, it is Dying Message Extra anything like Fate Extra, PSP RPG, where you play as Nero Claudius if he was a scantily clad female girl person. Well, since you're the only one who's played that game, you will have to tell me. I am probably one of the very few people who has played that game. Oh, wow. Let's continue. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Well, Michael, um, it's Pride Month, and I wanted to find something queer to talk about. I think we've done it. The movie, The Third Man Out, which we're going to be talking about today, we we all watched it on Amazon Prime Video, so you could find it there too if you want to watch it before we spoil it all for you. I am the host of this extraneous endeavor, Noah Max Levine, and I'm ecstatic and excited to be here with our resident anime expert, Michael Savitsky. I thought you were going to have the day off from being the anime expert, but you've already made references once, and I'm sure you will do so again. Anime takes no day off. They really don't. They air that stuff around the clock. There's so much of it. <laughs> so let's let's bring in our guests so we can start talking about this movie and all the, and all the stuff that we got to talk about. Starting with our first guest. Our first guest is an improv coach and performer and seasonal allergy sufferer, Steve Kleinedler. Welcome to Dying Message Extra. Hi Noah. Hi Mike. Thank you for having me on. It's good to see you. Good to have you here, Steve. Um, on a scale of one to ten, how extra was this movie? Uh, this movie is like season four of Melrose Place in terms of extraness. <laughs> I don't know yeah. what that means. Oh, jeez. <laughs> I know the show. I never just I've never watched it. Can uh, you convert that to a scale of one to ten for um, for those of us? You're so you're so young. It, it, it is it is extremely extra. Uh, it, it it is very much a product of its time and specialness. And uh, so yes, it is it is very extra. I'm really excited to break apart all the product of its timeness. Um, that's definitely something you can't help but notice. Um, let's introduce our second guest. Our second guest is the collage artist behind HDS Collages on Instagram, Harrison Scantling. Welcome to Dying Message Extra. Thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it. It's great to see you. Great to have you here. Same question. On a scale of one to 10, or I guess a pop culture reference we may or may not uh, have as a reference point, how extra was this movie? For me, it was like 1980s levels of soap opera realness. Like it was that extra for me. Very heavy-handed. What characterizes like 1980s soaps versus soaps from other decades? Just the, the pomp and circumstance of it all. Like it's very dramatic, very gaudy, very big. Preachy, if you will. Lots of pinhole wipes. Yeah. <laughs> I assume the pinhole wipes were an artifact of it being a detective movie, you know, kind of evoking <laughs> that 50s noir flair. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, they're they're trying to throw some noir flavor in there, but mostly they just the the cat fell off the glitter, um, and and the whole bottle of glitter fell into the mix. So uh, let's get to know both of you a little bit. This is the same question we usually ask: How do you feel about mysteries? Like, do you watch or read any of those things? Do you enjoy them or or, or not? As a child, um, I read all of the Agatha Christie novels. There's like eighty of them in the seventies. 
Uh, and I'm a big fan of uh, noir. Like I've, I've read a lot of Dashiell Hammett short stories, that kind of thing. And I do like a good noir film uh, from the 40s and 50s. More modern movies, uh, as I got older and as time progressed, I, I, I lean more towards horror than detective. You know, I enjoyed Knives Out as much as everyone else. And uh, I think in terms of this show, you know, I viewed it through a few lenses, but I, I think to echo Harrison, even though I made a Miller's Place 90s reference, I think Harrison <laughs> was spot on with the 80s because it had a very murder she wrote feel to me. Yes. And the book was written in 1992 uh-huh. that this is based on. So Makes sense. kind of bridging all these eras. Uh, Harrison, same question to you. Lover of mystery or scorner of mystery? Hmm. Mm, a little bit in between because when I was younger, I'm not as well read as Steve, clearly, but I used to read a lot of um, Hardy Boys books. Yes. I used to love them, even though they're not, you know, they're not politically correct. But I used to love to read the Hardy Boys books. Fan of Scooby-Doo, you know, Scooby-Doo Mysteries. So I, I guess I'm a fan of mystery. Um, I like a good thriller. Um, but it doesn't sound like it's like, um, it's not your go-to, but it's something you enjoy. No, it's not my go-to, but you know what? Steve brought up a good point. Like, I love Murder, She Wrote. That's a good one. I could. Didn't this seem to have the same plot structure as a extended episode of Murder, She Wrote? Yes, it did. It really did. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, all the the way that kind of the twists played out, I can see that. Because I was watching the movie and it came out in 2005 that you said, I didn't realize that this was a 1992 book because in 1992, I was a queer activist in Chicago. And that suddenly I understand why the movie seemed a little dated for 2005. It's very on point for 1992. Mm -hmm. Right. In terms of like the queer politics and the kind of the different ideas about what it means to be queer and activism and that sort of thing. Which kind of leads me into my next question. Has either of you seen a lot of what you would consider queer movies or TV? So this one is made (laughs) was made for here TV, which was I don't know if that's still a channel that exists. um, But it was like a cable channel at that time. Harrison. Uh, You know what? No, not unless you are looking at a specific channel. You don't really see that on just like I don't want to say regular television, but you just don't really see a lot of that. I know um, my first encounter with this movie was when I was probably in high school or, or late middle school, and I downloaded it because I was like in the closet and actively seeking out like the gay movies that existed. Yeah, because I didn't even realize that this was a thing until you told me about it. I had never heard of it before. Yeah. And then I didn't realize it was based on a series of books. I, like I fell down a rabbit hole of like, okay, what's this whole thing about? Um, because they made such a point of him being a um, a gay detective, the only gay detective in Albany, New York. So, <laughs> the only person in Albany, New York. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm a little older. I'm 54, and so in the 70s, there certainly was not a lot of queer representation in media. Period, and when it was, it was very coded, and when it was overt. Uh, you know, the queers were always the villain, you know, would usually die, that sort of thing. Uh, in the late 80s, early 90s, uh, when new queer cinema was coming to the fore, you know, your Derek Jarmans, your Todd Haynes, that kind of thing. I was living in Chicago, and I would go to art houses and seek out, you know, queer themed movies. The Haynes's and the Jarmans were really good. But there was also a lot of 
homemade efforts, which, you know, A for effort, cinematically, they left a lot of, a lot lack, you know, there, there was a lot lacking. However, there was nothing like it. And so we went to these movies to support them and see them just because that's, you know, what there was. So the early 90s had a lot of like really kind of rough offerings. Uh, and then that got better and better. But even today, I think queer cinema is still pretty niche. It's not pervasive. And I think a lot of queer representation is still a little tokenistic. Although, you know, we've come a long way from where it was Will and Grace, you know, being groundbreaking or whatnot. And I think it's great that young queers today have representation in the media that just did not exist 40 years ago. Yeah, there's some Netflix and Hulu series out there. In particular, it feels like the other thing with this movie is I wish it was more representative in some ways, since I'm saying that this is an episode for Pride Month, in that it's like represents a very white cisgender gay male viewpoint from 1992 in 2005. And I was like, did I just do a bad job looking for movies? And I googled and googled and googled like gay detective, queer detective, LGBT detective. And these movies do not exist. As far as I can tell, there's probably more books and such. I, I think this ties into, I mean, like the queerest folkization of the, you know, of the time. It 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 very much plays into everything that you just said. You know, nowadays there are many more offerings, but in you know, 20 years ago, it was few and far between, and what was there tended to be uh, very um, homogenous. Yeah, shall we say. Yeah, I'm very interested in talking about that. But I have, I have one more um, icebreaker question, which is, has anybody ever been to Albany, New York, where this movie is set? <laughs> no. <laughs> I've driven through it on the turnbike. Yeah, I think that's about it for me. Um, I, was, I was born in upstate New York, but not, uh, but not Albany. My, my first thought, that first establishing shot, I'm like, this is way too fancy for Albany. <laughs> I think it was shot in Canada, wasn't it? Yes, it was. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Gotta be. But it said, yeah. it said Albany on the hospital. It must be Albany. He had a New York license plate. Yeah. So let's, let's start kind of getting into it. So as we've said, the book, The Third Man Out, was uh, written in 1992. It was the fourth book in the Donald Strachey mystery series by Richard Stevenson. Um, it was the first one they made into a movie, but it was the fourth book in the series. There's a lot of these books, huh? Oh, yeah. I've read one of them. 16 at least. Also a long time ago. Uh, the other thing about it, the, the lead character is played by Chad Allen, who is an American former actor and psychologist. So it doesn't look like he's acting anymore. He stopped around 2011. This was a big deal. He's one of the first mainstream actors to come out. Um, he played Tommy Westfall in St. Elsewhere. Uh, if, if you're familiar with the end of St. Elsewhere, where the entire series you find out is seen through the snow globe of mm -hmm. his character. And he, you know, he'd gone on to do other things, but he came out of the closet pretty early. So I think it, in one regard, it is really cool that he put his name and his uh, stature behind these movies because not many other people were at this time. He was also Matthew Cooper on Dr. Quinn Medicine Woman for 147 episodes. That's probably his other biggest credit. Didn't click for me that he had been such a mainstream person. Yeah, it was his coming out was it was it was like a People magazine moment. I think it took middle America by surprise. I don't know. Yeah, overall, I felt like most of the acting in this movie was decent 
Mm. Uh, (laughs) That's my personal opinion. That's why I'm saying that. What? How did other people feel? I felt like he he was not like this. I'm not saying the script gave them a lot to work with, but it wasn't like cringy B movie acting most of the time. (laughs) (laughs) Chad Allen, I thought was very good. Yeah, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. some of it has that. Canadian earnestness that you see in film shot in Canada. Um, it just, I don't know how, it, it's just very earnest and acting. I, several times in my notes, I wrote down Emmy, Emmy, you know, they're going for that Emmy moment. Yeah. Harrison, how about you? How did the, how was the acting for you? Um, <laughs> it kind of reminded me of like, um, Hallmark movies, you know what yeah. I mean? Yes, the, the acting is was on that level for me. I believe no one. I I was very well aware of the fact that I was watching a movie. You know, I wasn't really immersed in it. It actually took me several times to watch this. Ooh, oh, you mean you didn't watch it several times? Like you broke it up into pieces? No, no, I actually ended up watching this several times. Oh, oh, oh yeah, oh, I broke yeah. it up into like five chunks. Yeah. And we watched the whole thing this morning in two pieces because we stopped for breakfast. I mean, the guy who I call Uncle Vic because he played Uncle Vic on Queer as Folk, the older guy, uh, Rucka, um, like he's a decent actor. I've seen him act before, but his like speeches, he was given speeches. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, it takes a certain actor to deliver a speech and make it not sound like a speech. But there was a lot of, you know, pontification. So, That's true. you know, it is what it was. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, Harrison, you also said that you watched the other movies in the series. Oh yeah, 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 all four of them. Oh wow, or there's four total. Yeah, I watched all four on Amazon <laughs> Prime. Yeah, wow. <laughs> Is this indicative of the others? Very much so. Very. Much so. <laughs> yeah, they do do some world, like a little bit of world building, but we're going to Stenectady. <laughs> yeah, it's. It's just the same movie over and over again with a different plot. Which, why I think it's like uh, Murder She Wrote. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's you know it's yeah. very paint by number. But yeah, but they're also like all based around the central plot is some kind of like hot button gay topic almost because I feel like there's one. So this one is about like a gossip columnist who outs people, and I feel like there was one about like a gay bashing. Like, you know, a person's house or lawn being targeted and painted on? Uh, two lesbians. Two lesbians, yes. Oh, maybe they moved into a neighborhood and they weren't welcome? <sighs> it's so convoluted. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do like the fact that they show, you know, a gay couple being gay. Even that said, I mean, even though there were butt shots and stuff, you could – it was like – it still wasn't as steamy as like straight actors going at it on soap operas. No. I mean, even like when you see a guy's butt, it's very sterile and it's not done in the same way as, you know, Dallas or Dynasty or probably even Murder, She Wrote. And this is for gay TV and a gay audience. So it's pretty interesting that they tone that down. That might have something to do also with Chad and if he was still... You know, trying to think about his career and stuff. Mm. I, I think it was more, in some ways, queer representation. On one hand, it, there, there, there's, there's no middle ground. It's either desexualized or hypersexualized. Mm. So, I mean, what was interesting to me is the hypersexualization of some of the non-white characters 
in that it, it the choices that were made as to like you know whose butt to show whose you know penis to show i mean it was just, it one could probably do a dissertation on this should we talk about the porn star cameo then <laughs> was he a real porn star? Oh, he was a real porn star, yeah. Yes. Oh, I didn't know that. Yes, he was. Okay. Actually, that's probably why. I yeah. caught in the credits, he has an exclusive contract with one of the porn studios, so they had to give permission for him to appear in the film. Wow. I did not know he was a porn star. Okay, that... that The character's name is Dick Steele, and from what I gathered, he does um, like photo shoots and then has a, a, an associated phone sex line where people think they're talking to him. Phone sex line sounds very 90s. <laughs> it made me think of that uh, episode of Rocco's Modern Life where he worked for the phone sex line. What? Was like, oh, baby, oh, baby, oh, baby, oh. <laughs> that was the whole thing. <laughs> because they didn't say what it was because it was a children's TV show. Yes. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> Right. So this happens like at some point, like kind of smack dab in the middle of the movie, he's following a lead and it takes him to this place. And it, it's not really essential to the plot, but it's like he gets the guy in a room to talk to him and he's like, I'm in a rush. I have to go to my photo shoot. I need to change. And he picks up what looks like a sailor outfit off of his rack of many costumes, but he doesn't change into it. He just gets far enough to be completely naked and stands in front of a mirror while the two of them talk. The, the one reason why this st- struck me odd is it's like, okay, they're going to leave a lot to the imagination, da-da-da-da. And they showed you know, his penis in the mirror, and he was soft. And I'm like, in the context of this scene, he would not... I, I mean, to me, the implication was, I mean, in, as far as I was concerned, at the end of that scene, they like had a quickie. Um, <laughs> I, did, I didn't read into that. You know, it's it's when it comes to that sort of thing in in movies, it's like if they don't say it, I'm going to assume they did it. Um, except I don't know, it was such a weird out of place scene. Yeah. Oh, totally. Not super necessary to the plot or anything. Jumping back to the beginning of the movie, the first like I don't know five ten minutes, there's a person that gets shot. And it's very, I don't know, they're trying to be very suspenseful with it. And it leads right into the opening credits, which are trying to be like a mystery movie with jazz and animation. And for me, that was the cheapest looking part of the movie. <laughs> uh, what did, did other people have thoughts on that, like the first opening moments? How did it set your expectations for the rest of the movie? Correctly. Well. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't expecting much after the opening scene because I'm not going to say who it was that shot the guy, but when he got shot, I knew who it was who did it. And then we go into the opening scene of the animation. I'm like, oh my God, this is. I I agree. I had a very strong suspicion too. And if you've seen enough Murder, She Wrote or Hardy Boy Mystery Hours or whatever, it's formulaic. Yeah. I was so excited because I thought we were going to get Rene Abergenois, but it turned out to be Jack Weatherall. So I was like doing some uh, IMDb searching at that point. <laughs> I mean, Amazon Prime usually has all the things that pop up with the character names, but I don't know if it did it for this movie just because it wasn't. It's not important enough to Amazon Prime. I, I did write down um, the the music. I, I wrote that it was modern, but had this. They were trying to go for this fifties palette, like it was clearly modern day. Mm-hmm. But they were tr- they were taking elements from forties and fifties noir movie making and it ended up being a muddle in between both especially when they went to that bar just randomly they were like put on your clothes we're going out and they go to this like basically noir bar and it's like this completely unimportant moment where it's just like okay it's like a little film noir for a moment and we're back they cut between that and an apparent murder Mm. 
<laughs> in a fun way. Hmm. <laughs> fun? In a way. <laughs> so let's touch one more time on this idea of Albany. Because in the movie, like they the the fact that they're in Albany comes up a whole bunch of times. <laughs> and it's an interesting choice of setting that I guess um goes back to Richard Stevenson when he wrote the books. Is he from there? That I don't know. I mean that would explain it. Like mm. all of Richard Rohde's books who was another gay writer in the 80s and 90s, um, were set in Chicago because he was from Chicago. Albany is an odd choice. When he, the client calls him up, he's like, you're the only gay private eye in the Capital District. Like, this town is filled with gay people, but also empty of gay people. It's very confusing. They got the area code right, at least, in close-ups. <laughs> uh, no, he grew up in Pennsylvania. One wonders why it wasn't set in Harrisburg. Yeah, are Alb- do Albany and Harrisburg have similar vibes because they're both the state capitals? They're both on like the major interstate through the state. They're not the biggest city in the state. I think they've kind of got an industrial feeling to them. Here's the quote. It, this is like re- very much at the end. This is like one of the last lines of the movie. Life isn't so black and white in Kansas, maybe, but not here in the Emerald City. The Emerald City? That's what I think he they said. call Albany the Emerald is that, City? Is that not the nickname? Did I get it wrong? No, that's the nickname of... Oz. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Cradle of the Union. The Carpet City? Hmm. Smallbany? I don't know. Maybe it wasn't Emerald City. That's what I heard. <laughs> no, that's... He may have said I it. Yeah, I heard that too. Oh, so maybe he was making a weird Oz reference. Oh, but he's like, we're in this metropolis that is Albany. Mm. But yeah, contrasting it with Kansas and like Middle America is, is pretty interesting. So what did you all make of... The Chad Allen's character, the detective in this film, Donald Strachey. They went to a lot of effort to make it like he's like not quite put together, but he clearly like <laughs> he like drives a shitty car. It's like kind of awkward sometimes, but also like he's completely like well dressed and clean house, and like his house is falling apart, but only in a very comedic way. <laughs> I thought for sure the car there was going to be a plot point where the car was going to die at an inappropriate moment. The way they, you know, kept alluding to that. There, there was the one scene he um, tried to quit the client and the client chased him out to the car and he couldn't drive away because it didn't start. But no, it was a pretty minor payoff. I think that the way they wanted to characterize him with it at odds of some of the other aspects of his life, like he hates his homosexuality, but he's in a completely functional relationship. He's all falling apart and stuff, but he owns a home and a car and he's got a, got a job and a boyfriend. Pick a side. <laughs> the one thing that didn't ring true to the character is that I think most people's views over outing have, um, I mean, a lot of people are against outing, and but I think th- there's always usually an exception in place for unless they're an utter hypocrite. So I, I was struck why he, he would be so just aghast about outing hypocrites. Right. The The whole plot of the movie involves this guy, John Rutka. Is that the guy played by the actor that you named a second ago? Jack Weatherall. By yes. Jack Weatherall. Who played Uncle Vic in Queer's Folk. And he has um, a website called The Rutka Report where he's he outs a person a month, apparently, mm-hmm. among the many closeted people. It gets 8,000 hits <laughs> a week. <laughs> wow. We all wanted to say it. One of the few things I found when I Googled this was that in the book, it was just a print 
newspaper newsletter newsletter mm-hmm. newspaper leaflet that he would drop around town and then they updated mm-hmm. it for 2005 by making it a website and a newsletter because remember his boyfriend had the job at the print shop so that yeah. he could get half price on the printing and it very much felt like there's a scene where he's like why do you have all these physical files and he's like it's important for me to keep backups and that felt like a, an excuse to have the physical files in the year 2005 because they became important to the plot mm-hmm so, so one of the things about Donald Strachey is he is very much like mad at Rutka and at odds with him and not agreeing with what he's doing. The, uh, another thing about him is he's not above roughing someone up. <laughs> but it's so comical because Chad Allen is so small, you know what I mean? Like That's another characteristic. Short. Yeah. Appreciate the uh, short gay representation for those of us who are below average height. <laughs> I wrote down that whole, it's such a trope into, you know, I don't want to take the job, but we need the job because, you know, we need the money. You know, the roof started leaking and the the, the music that was playing and the interplay between Chad Allen and his boyfriend, you know, I wrote down, what is this, an ABC comedy? It's, uh, <laughs> it was just so, this movie was like too many different genres at once. It wasn't, mm-hmm. a, it wasn't fully a detective thing. It wasn't fully a noir thing as Harrison mentioned it had this hallmark vibe I mean it was it was trying to be it was trying to appeal to too many different kinds of audiences and as a result kind of felt like this weird pastiche yeah I mean I thought it was interesting that he was this guy in a like committed relationship this is 2005 so they're not married although presumably they would be married if it was set today um and his partner is Timmy slash Timothy Callahan an Irish Catholic aide to the state senator. Which is int- introduced like very hard right off the bat and then never relevant again. <laughs> what did people think of Timmy and the relationship in general? I actually like the boyfriend more than the main <laughs> character. Uh, maybe because there wasn't a, a lot of the boyfriend. Well, I don't know. But I just, I liked, I, I, maybe just because I thought the boyfriend was more attractive. I don't know. <laughs> Um, but I enjoyed the boyfriend. He was fine. The relationship was very like, I don't want to say straight, but it was just, it was so straight to me. (laughs) Like it was very, I don't know how to describe it, but it just. Heteronormative. Yeah. Very heteronormative. That's what it felt like. Mm -hmm. Timmy was in Battlestar Galactica. So that was bonus points for me. I appreciated their relationship and the fact that it's, Again, representation, but then again, since it's on the Here channel, the only people watching it, I mean, it's not like it's, you know, representation for the people who are watching Yes, Dear or All About Jim or anything. You know, the the mainstream America is not watching this. So if that's the case, why make their relationship so sterile? I'm not saying they need to, you know, have three ways in the alley, but it was just so. Yeah. Now that this is on Amazon Prime, in theory, anyone could watch it. But in practice, we know Amazon Prime like only is only going to show you a gay movie if you've watched other gay movies. <laughs> I had never heard of this series, and you know, I for a long period of time I would seek out queer films, um, and uh, did not know yeah. this was a thing. And mm-hmm. you know, yay, Chad Allen! I'm sure he helped make it happen. I think the cause was noble, but the execution was. I don't know. Would we be seeing the same things, though, if we were like at this point reviewing Murder, She Wrote, which is very by the book and, you know. 
Yes and no. I mean, I think the the fact that it's like 1992 queer politics in 2005 makes it seem even more dated than it is. For sure. Yeah, I almost I felt like with their relationship and the movie in general, but most with the relationship, there was a, a somewhere down the line an edit of the script or a, an edit of the film where their the relationship was a little bit more rough around the edges. Like maybe someone played with the idea of him cheating on him. Like you said, Steve, with that scene where it seemed like they were probably like in any other movie, you'd assume they fucked. He flirted with <laughs> a lot of end. people. The, the, the whole cheating on him trope is kind of heteronormative too. I mean, maybe he got it on with Dick Steele and then went home and told his boyfriend about it, who was like, oh, yes, tell me more. You right. know, not in a cuckoldy way, but like, you know. Yeah, I don't mean, yeah, when I say rough edges, I mean less like, less sterilized, like a little bit yeah. more. Like some other version of that relationship might have existed in somebody else's head at some point. <laughs> and I wonder how much of it is a reflection of what's in the books, which. I- I read one, but cannot remember. I wanted to see them act like the adults in Riverdale. <laughs> I did watch the first season, so poorly? No, like... Like, you know, Get Up to Trouble. Uh, yeah. That would be an interesting show. <laughs> so, yeah, so we talked a little bit about John Rutka, and he has that website, and because he outs people, he's getting de- death threats, and that's kind of the the setup for the whole movie. And he's he's shot at the beginning of the movie, and then he his house is set on fire, and he's trying to get Donald Strachey to figure out who's doing it and to protect him. I don't understand why people always hire detectives for protection, like hire a bodyguard. The detective <laughs> is the person you hire after someone is dead. Right. Is this a good time to mention the candy? Yes. Like uh, Yes, Chekhov's candy. Um, <laughs> I'm like, okay, this is apparently important, but the payoff on it was so it, it, it was so not a, a payoff was there even any payoff oh it had to oh. do with the dentures oh that's the reason oh god okay <laughs> so right so in the very very first scene of the movie he, the uh retka is in bed with his lover slash boyfriend eddie mm-hmm. and he's like eating candy in bed jelly bellies yeah and he goes out of bed to get more candy, and that's when he's shot. And then every scene we see him, like, carrying around a dish. He's got dishes of candy all over the house. When the house catches fire, there's burning candy. When he's kidnapped, there's spilt candy. Candy, <laughs> candy, candy. I knew, I mean, we've all seen these, you know, the, you, you, can, you can smell the Chekhov guns a mile <laughs> away, but usually they have a more specific payoff. And this was just, there was something... I wrote down that was actually more Chekhov's gun than the candy, but it was, I think, accidental. Well, there was the gun. (laughs) And again, having watched all of these other shows, like unless you see something happens, you know, it probably hasn't. I didn't think for a minute he'd been the arson victim. Oh, neither did I, because they didn't show Face. Yeah, they go back and forth. What I wrote down in the scene was like, they're going to a lot of effort to not show us the face when we are yeah. supposed to know this is him. Plus, not monologuing either, so I definitely knew it wasn't him. 35 minutes to 40 minutes into the film, he gets kidnapped, or a car drives up in the middle of the night, and uh, we see someone burned in a warehouse. But you only see them from behind. You see that their leg is in a cast, like his leg had been. Mm-hmm. And then they identify the body based on the bullet wound in his leg and the dentures that he had in his mouth. Well, they say the dental records, and that's not what the cop would say if they just found his dentures in someone's mouth. Right? They wouldn't say we the, the no, they, dental records. They specifically match. mentioned that his such dentures. Such a plot hole. I mean, because like you can identify people by their teeth, 
if you found dentures, which they didn't say, they just said dental records. If you found dentures, that doesn't prove anything for the very reason that you can pop them out. Mm-hmm. Well, right, but it it would connect him to the body if if you could identify. I don't know if you can identify burnt dentures or not. Depends how good they are, I guess. I don't know. It wouldn't prove it's the body, <laughs> but it would prove that someone was wearing his dentures. Go- going by how good this guy was at subterfuge, I assume that there was a fully unburned, completely clean set of dentures inside that burned corpse mouth. Um, before we kind of go through the plot and and go through the mis- the mystery, I just wanted to make sure we got to all of the uh, interesting side characters in this movie. We can rate all of their performances <laughs> and the relevance of the plot. Um, the neighbor, the yes. The neighbor lady. The exercise yeah, lady. Let's talk about the exercise lady. What what did you make of her? <laughs> well, to uh, to quote her, uh, I believe uh, more or less directly, gay this, gay that, enough with the gay already. And that's, <laughs> that's my general feeling about this movie, right? <laughs> yeah. It was like they wanted an Edith Massey character, but didn't go there. Right. Uh, Edith Massey being one of John Waters' go-to's it was almost like they were making fun of her. This character, I, I don't know. It was just, it, it was very halfway done. They couldn't decide if they, I mean, obviously she like was homophobic, but like in a funny way, like a harmless way. I don't know. Also, she was clueless because she was flirting with um, the detective because the last line of the scene was, I always leave the back door open. I bet you do. Which is absolutely something that you should say to a person you don't know. Ever, <laughs> if you want to be, married. and she never came back. She walked past. Well, one time later, yeah. You go yeah, gay, but... gay, gay. <laughs> when they were fighting, <laughs> but um, but yeah, like she, at the time when there's the little fire in the house, they go to talk to her across the street, and she's just outside exercising on her porch for an hour and a half every day. Well, let's let's be specific. She was jazzercising in front of her front door, facing away from her front door, with two what I would call stage speakers on the yes. front porch. <laughs> it was pretty bad. It was the reason I said uh, up front that I thought the acting was okay was because when we got to this scene and her acting was not good, I was like, oh, actually, I found all the acting before this point like not so bad. I was sitting here thinking about how bad it was, but that also seems to be a unique experience that I had. <laughs> It added to the ambiance. <laughs> Another of my favorite small characters is Allison, the contractor. Oh, I couldn't stand her. <laughs> our, our, our sole element of lesbian representation. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah it was very, um, very stereotypical that like, who is the lesbian character in the movie? She's the contractor. The contractor. Mm-hmm. Also, who would never put in that chandelier? I mean, <laughs> that, ugh. Yeah, she, she she won't fix their roof, and so it's leaking. Uh, she can't do it in a timely manner because she's got to go to a, a Dykes for Bikes event. And then she just does what she wants to do. Like, she doesn't want the chandelier up because she liked it. <laughs> you know? Oh, uh, right around this time, we notice, because uh, Chad has some of his clothes off, I don't know if it's Chad Allen's actual tattoo or the character's tattoo, but he has a tramp stamp. And I was like, that's an interesting <laughs> choice. And also one of the, I think, three to four tribal armband tattoos yes. in this movie. Which were a thing <laughs> in yeah. 2002, but mm-hmm. man. <laughs> also, the other thing that came out in this scene that, you know, the, the house is falling apart. There's a leak. They need money. 
at one point you get a shot of the check. The check that he had been given by Rutka for all of this was $5,000. <laughs> Again, like they, did they not update it between 1992 and 2005? Even for 1992, that would have meant a lot. But I was just like, yeah. you're you're doing all of this. Your 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 whole thing on principle is over a five thousand dollar check. That's nothing. That will barely fix the leak. Well, mm-hmm. maybe that's why it's said in Albany. It can get you a lot of uh, a lot of um, what do they have in Albany that you could get a lot of nothing pasture. Gay people, apparently. You mentioned the jazz club before. Yeah. Because after mm-hmm. this, they go to the jazz club. Mm-hmm. I wrote, what kind of gay gets a cocktail not filled to the top? <laughs> <laughs> Those of us that are, are, are too um, meek to, to take it back and ask them to, mm-hmm. another one. What kind of bartender pours a gay guy yeah. a cocktail that doesn't go all the way to the top? <laughs> one of my favorite little details is they, they have these martini glasses in the uh in the club and then they use the exact same martini glasses in their home and that's just like indicative of the budget of the film that you see the same glasses in two different settings maybe they took them with that's it let me come let me complete my joke in albany five thousand dollars buys a lot of martinis there you go Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because anytime like um i don't know there's like five times in the movie where timmy is gonna make martinis for the both of them harrison i have a question since you watched this several times Did you pick up on different things with each watching? Yeah, with each viewing, like, with each viewing, you pick up more and more of what you didn't notice. Did any of it help it make it better, or did it just make it worse? Oh, God. (laughs) It didn't didn't really make it, it definitely did not make it better, but it kind of helped because when I watch the other movies, I'm like, okay, so this is, these are recurring themes because the husband still does make the drinks and all that other shit. Um, I don't know. In my gay relationship, we take turns making the drinks. That's true. (laughs) Neither of you is a detective, though. I'm a fictional detective. Are you not? (laughs) I say so on the podcast. (laughs) Oh, oops, sorry. (laughs) That's that's not a real thing. You can edit that out, then. Absolutely not. Some other small characters. Reno from Final Fantasy VII. I'm sorry, Rude from Final Fantasy VII. The there, throughout the movie, there's the specter of this guy with the glasses, and Michael showed me a picture of the character Rude from Final Fantasy VII, and they do look the same. They are identical. I've seen a picture <laughs> of this Final Fantasy VII character. That's another thing that had very little payoff. Yeah, he didn't. He wasn't important at all. He was just one of three thugs. And he got his foot nail gunned to the floor, <laughs> and yet just kind of. At some point, this turns into like a slapstick where nothing has repercussions. <laughs> right. The big glasses guy stalks Rutka at the hospital. He goes to uh, Strachey's home and they have a kerfuffle. And the renovations matter because he's able to pick the nail gun up off the floor. And that was one of the most shocking mo- moments of the movie for me when his foot got nail gunned. It didn't matter. Didn't matter. But there were no repercussions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it turns out that his boss is one of Rutka's targets, which is a GOP congressman. Um, who is sleeping with a puppeteer that we'll talk about in a second. And is also like quasi a mafia guy, question mark. But when we finally meet the congressman, he's smoking a cigar? Yes, like a cliche. 
And he's wearing a coat, like a trench coat that almost drags on the floor. And they're in this like loft wear space that has 30 foot ceilings and full glass views. Of- they did not mic properly. They're like, this is a wonderful large space. We don't know how to mic for this echo, but we're going to try. <laughs> yeah, there's there's a lot of a look at like all the different kinds of people that might be closeted. And it does feel like, I don't know, I feel like nowadays less people are closeted. I don't know how much of a, a thing this would be. I guess it is still a thing out there. In in 2005, somewhat, in the early 90s, definitely. Yeah. I mean, the, the Catholic Church and government and everything got away. I mean, look at Denny Haster, who is the head of the, the House Speaker. You know, all the stuff that they got away with, it was definitely an issue. But it, again, this is what happens when you take a 1992 book and set it in 2005 instead of 1992. Yeah. Yeah, that would have been a that would have been a smart idea. Yeah. I think it's just harder to hide now with what with the internet and all and phone. Yeah. Everyone has a camera on them at all times that instantly shoots pictures to the internet. There's also um, a bunch of references to AIDS and HIV and medicine, which would have made more sense in 1992, but, but I think still mostly makes sense in 2005. Um, Retka is very motivated in trying to promote, you know, healthcare, and as as a lot of the, I mean, most of queer activism in the what 80s and 90s was focused on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, by the mid 2000s, everything was um, gay marriage, gay marriage, gay marriage. I mean, HIV was still an issue, but at least you wouldn't die from it yeah. because there was medication. There were there were definitely some lines he was giving. You self loathing pre Stonewall piece of shit faggot mm-hmm. was one. They, I mean, they 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 didn't hold back on any of the language, and I don't know that you would necessarily just cavalierly throw out language like that in something shot nowadays. It was something you would definitely hear in the 90s, though. Continuing to touch on some of these characters. Oh, well, we have to mention the dog for a second. They have a tiny dog named Dr. Watson. I wonder what that could be a reference to. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't make that connection, duh. (laughs) There's two scenes in a row with, like, uh, sleazy hotel operators who both sold information on their gay clients to Rutka. Uh, and the first one is a nicer-ish looking hotel. The The receptionist at the hotel is a recurring character, right, Harrison? Yeah, he's a recurring character. Yeah, Kenny. So here he's like working at this hotel and and uh, Donald Strachey pushes past him. Uh, what, what happens with him in later movies? What's he up to? He, one day he just ends up showing up at uh, Strachey's office and is like, hey, I want to work for you. I want to be a detective. And he starts working for him. And he's Kenny is gay. That's it. This is also that world where like everybody you meet is probably gay. That's just the way this movie works. (laughs) No, that's my world. But um, (laughs) always assume. Uh, I I think this could have, if, if, if they had gone with like 45 minute episodes, this could have had a place on network TV, I think. A thing I was going to say is it also it feels like HRC queer. Oh God, yes. Mm. Which is to say, like sanitized and mainstream. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Human rights champagne fund. It's not necessarily representative of everyone. Mm-hmm. Does Kenny have a boyfriend, or we just know he's gay? We know he's gay, but he doesn't have a boyfriend. But he just—you never see him actually with anyone. He just always talks about 
oh, I was with this guy or I dated that guy or I did this last night, but you never actually see him doing any of this. It's, like <laughs> it's the stereotype of that kind of character, you know, being sexless. I mean, you know, kind of almost like the comic relief buffoon. Yeah, the side, yeah. sidekick. Protégé. It's funny how a queer show still falls prey to the same queer tropes. Isn't it? <laughs> it's hard to know exactly what they're trying to make here and what they're trying to do. The hotel creep was pretty creepy spying on people. Oh, Michael, you wrote down one of the things that he was watching. Oh, the oh, the, the first guy? I want to know more about that weird lesbian like apron fantasy that was going on in one of the shots. Like what was what was the situation there? <laughs> that could be an anthology on Skinamax. <laughs> The ho- you know, the hotel camera show. Mm-hmm. <laughs> After they're done at that hotel, they go to this other hotel, which is more of a motel. <clears throat> and the guy who works there is a clean freak and he has an oxygen tank for some reason. Mm-hmm. I thought for sure after he put the oxygen on him, it was going to end up being like nitrous oxide or something. <laughs> <laughs> it was bugging me the whole time he was talking and talking and talking. I'm like, why are they letting this guy talk so much? And they were doing like the film noir thing where they like zoom in on part of his face and like cut it over to the side of the screen while the thing he's talking about is depicted and they do it twice and then i i was looking on imdb i'm like i know this voice and it's uh richard ian cox which is who's primarily known uh to animate people as the voice of inuyasha or you might have seen him or heard him as the voice of quicksilver on x-men evolution oh i was like ah <laughs> so i guess he's a voiceover guy so like why have him talk a lot yeah. It was very weird, though. Very weird when I realized that. <laughs> and we get a lot of exposition from this guy about the people the people having sex in his hotel. And one of the people having sex in his hotel is the puppet, the puppeteer. <laughs> you want to see what you can really do with the demented puppet character. If you haven't watched it, I recommend watching uh, Chris Maloney's series, Happy. I'm aware of it, yeah. He plays a police detective. Uh, who sees his daughter's make-believe friend, which is voiced by Patton Oswalt. And there is a children's show character that is just... The the, the show is so extreme, but it's very comic book-like. The violence in it is very comic book-like. I recommend it. Yeah, it's it's crossed my radar now and then. But not my Playdar. I know I've seen like a lot of like screenshots of it and stuff. I think it's because I follow both Pat Oswald and uh, Chris Maloney on Twitter. But I don't. <laughs> I've, not, I've never seen the show. There's no butt like Chris Maloney butt. <laughs> <laughs> the, so the puppet guy is another one of these characters who is a closeted gay man that exists in their town slash universe, and he has like a children's puppet show on local TV that is awful. So bad. <laughs> he's also the the other like he's the Chekhov's puppeteer that did not pay off. It didn't pay off. Like they they had him like show up on TV randomly like three times, and then like his main scene is just being a little weird and then jumping out a window, and that's it. Like nothing to justify his puppet stuff at all. Did you catch what the puppets with the with the theme of the puppet show was? It was um, be what you want to be. <laughs> yeah, they they were. Trying to be irony about a, a, cl- a person in the closet singing about like being being who you're supposed to be. Mm-hmm. And what was with that like hot shirtless bear costume guy on the set for no reason? <laughs> as they're as they're walking through the studio, yeah, uh, like um, you know, it's like if Barney between takes took off the top part of his costume and just the person was not wearing a shirt underneath. They're wearing a shirt underneath. 
<laughs> Why wouldn't they be? And yeah, there's a couple other little characters here and there. Were there other like big moments that stood out to people? Big character moments or, or plot moments or lines? And then we will dig into the meat of the ending. Their big plot <laughs> fork. I, I just wrote down a lot of Emmy moments. <laughs> like when we find out that Eddie really shot Rutka. Right. And he's like, because he wanted me to. I mean, just it was just so emoted over the top. Also, that scene, mm -hmm. the way they shot the scene and presented it to us makes no sense with that being a plot between the two of them. Nope. None whatsoever. Because it was clear it was yeah. clearly depicted as like he was taken by surprise and like not just like, okay, I'm gonna do I'm gonna shoot you now. Like you can't show us that scene and then say they were both in on it. Like it doesn't work. <laughs> also, small character, the sister yes. who was written to be neither good nor evil. Like, were we supposed to be like Oh, she's taking, you know, his estate, not giving any to the lover, but there also was no, she wasn't a bad person and they were like trying to make her out to be a bad person. It was like, well, yeah, for half a second, you're supposed to think maybe she killed him to get the inheritance because what, if he died, the, the money that the things that he got from their father would then go to her as his sister. They also did this thing with her where she's like wearing a bowling alley shirt and she's like, God, I have to manage the bowling alley. I have to get back to the bowling alley. Why did he leave me half a bowling alley? Bowling alley didn't fucking matter. It never, ha never came up. It's just oddly specific. <laughs> it's just like her one character trait is bowling alley. Why did they cast Sean Young for that role, though? Because I'm thinking, oh, Sean Young is in this movie. She's going to have a bigger role in the movie. And then, no, she doesn't. She's... No. Oh, she did look vaguely familiar. What do you, what, did, oh, Ace Ventura Pet Detective. Fatal Instinct. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She was a fairly big, uh. She's a Blade Runner. Yeah. She's Rachel. Interesting. And I was like, what? Blade Runner? <laughs> <laughs> she was also Brenda Stratford in Attack of the 50-Foot Cheerleader. She was in a lot of things. Yeah. Wasn't she dating, um, who played, uh, the stoner in Fast Times at Ridgemont High? Um. Hmm. Oh, God. Um, why can't I think of his name? Well, she married Robert Lugin. Is that him? No. <laughs> Is he a famous actor now? It's like a huge star, and I can't remember Heath his Ledger? name. Heath Ledger? No, no, no. No, in Fast Times at Ridgemont High. I'm bad at this. Sean Penn. Yes. Didn't, wasn't, oh. oh, no. They just have the same first name. Never mind. <laughs> 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 Sean Young, Sean Penn. Pretty confusing, Sean Young. To have the same name. Harrison, I am curious. So uh, did you watch this movie several times before you watched any of the other movies? How'd that all play out? I watched this movie a couple of times. Yeah, no, I really, yeah, I watched it several times. <laughs> and then I ended up watching the other ones uh, maybe like once or twice. Because like, it's a kind of movie where I can start it, but then I just sort of kind of lose interest. I'm like, let me go back again and again and again. I wish this had been on uh, Netflix so I could have watched it at 1.25 speed. Mm. <laughs> That's a handy trick. Do you think of the four movies there is like a better one or a worse one or just a lot of same? There was one that might be a little bit more shocking than this one was. Um, I don't remember the name of it, but it's the one about the um, – the guy who was like the poster child for a conversion therapy group. I vaguely mm. recall that. Yeah. So that one is, I think that one is a little bit more. No, actually it's not. It's a lot more interesting than this one that we watched. <laughs> actually. Yeah, it is. 
they learned as they went maybe walking there is also something about it like like what we've been saying the whole time like if this had been a movie in 1992 we would have been like oh yeah this is what's going on right now this is what everyone's talking about and it just feels a little a little stale in that regard 1992 what um what year was in and out made with kevin klein back when they were still um you know using straight actors 97 in and out was 97 yes wow (laughs) a lot of progress has been made very quickly (laughs) although nobody is making uh queer detective films yet so there's still progress to be made (laughs) someday can we talk about the hacking scene real quick (laughs) (laughs) yes we can talk about the hacking scene so first of all they go onto this laptop and they're looking at some document and as they scroll over every piece of like everything they do on the computer goes like they're scrolling down a list just like with the mouse and everything highlights and it's like i'm like yeah that's how computers work and then they go onto his website and it's like straight up a geocities like they they might as well have had a bunch of animated gifs a lot like all over link tags (laughs) yeah and then he just somehow hops from the front page of the website to a banking document. And it's like, did he keep the banking documents in a directory on his website? Like, you're going to try to explain any of this? Like, how did you get this? <laughs> Can we talk about the end? Yes. So let's 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 get to the end. So there's a lot of twists. Because I have statements. There's a lot of twists and turns in this movie. So at first, at first it kind of looks like Rutka may have been staging some of these things. And he's not going to work for him because he's like, maybe you shot yourself and, and staged this Molotov cocktail. And it turns out he did stage those things. Then mm-hmm. he gets um, supposedly burned to death. And so Chad Allen, Donald Strachey goes around trying to figure out who he was going to out next. And that's probably the person that killed him. Mm-hmm. Finally, they figure out it was the bishop who we saw in the hospital at the first scene of the movie. And he was the puppet guy's lover. And so they arrest like one of his sub priests. And there was also a piece of the car found at the scene and all of that. And so it's like, that seems to be the end of it. But he follows the lover Eddie to the airport and finds Rutka alive. And it turns out that it was a fake body that was burned. And it was all of his plan to collect life insurance. So in that last scene in front of the airport, yes. where Rutka is trying to convince him to, you know not turn them in and all these things are going to do. He is someone who presumably had been killed and he's just out there in broad daylight (laughs) having this 10 minute conversation with people walking in and out and he's not quiet about it. He's like loudly pontificating. And I'm like, how there's like a hundred people who have just ID'd you. I mean, it it was just so utterly impossible. There's also no way he'd be able to get onto an airplane, which the main character points out, like, you will just get arrested if you go on an airplane. He's like, no, it'll be fine. We got a plan. It's great. Let us go. <laughs> also, like, it's post 9-11. How are you going to get on a plane without ID? I mean, mm-hmm. it... Uh... And their plan, their plan to, like, we're going to go off to, like, Mexico to make AIDS drugs or something. Like, what? <laughs> what kind of plan is this? <laughs> Instead of focusing on, like, the real trauma, uh, I mean, he was... He was he, he, as a child, had been molested by the the, the person who is now the bishop. Mm-hmm. That just kind of all gets pushed aside and is almost irrelevant when it mm-hmm. is actually very relevant. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, it made me wonder what was the point then if like we're not focusing on that, but we're focusing on the age drugs. Like what was the whole point of this at all? Mm-hmm. To take us on a merry goose chase. <laughs> kind of like Melrose Place season six. Yeah, it just seems like there are too many different things going on when they really should have just maybe cut down and focused on one main sort of theme here. Mm-hmm. Just seemed a little too much. Yeah, it's interesting because you talk about how it has like a murder she wrote structure. And I think that's something they often do in an hour long television show where you like kind of go from place to place and don't visit the same people over and over again. Whereas in something like Knives Out or a classic murder mystery, like you meet all the suspects up front. And that's something that this movie could have benefited from. Or even something like Murder on the Orient Express, which is, you know, what it is, but the movie itself is such a spectacle. I mean, there's a reason to watch it. This just kind of gives lip service to so many things. But at the same time, I also want to applaud Chad Allen for like getting something out there. Mm Mm-hmm. But for so long, we were like, you know, begging for table scraps so that I guess we can't be surprised when we get table scraps. (laughs) It's so much in that territory, for sure. Well, first of all, no one is making movies that are like Agatha Christie style murder mysteries today. That's one of the things about Knives Out that made it like stand out like that is because it was such an homage. So if none of those movies are getting made, none of them can have gay characters or leads. (laughs) So... Kind of thinking back on how the movie ended, how does the movie feel about what Retka was doing? How does it want us to feel about Retka was what Retka was doing? <laughs> I think it makes us want to think he's justified in doing what he does because of the trauma he experienced. But I don't agree with that. Hmm. I, don't know. I think it, I think it wants us to have it both. He, the movie wants to have it both ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's something, Steve, about like what you were saying earlier, like the morality of an outing depends. And for me, that's what it is. It's like, you know, if a person is a congressman and they're actively voting against gay rights legislation, that's different than even like the puppeteer guy who was just kind of living his own life and doing whatever. Like, who cares? The details on this guy are very muddy. And I think that's what makes it difficult to have an opinion about what he's doing. Because like, he's clearly got files of people who don't deserve to be added as well as people who deserve to be added. So does he have like a shitty gossip website? And sometimes he does something politically like he uses the shitty stuff to get popular. And then he does like a big like, oh, this politician is is gay and outs him. That would have been an interesting movie. Right. <laughs> they never really make it specific how he conducts his business. Like, is he shitty sometimes and do the right thing every once in a while? Or like, is it only he only outs shitty people or what's his deal? And they go to so much effort to talk about how he's a liar and all this stuff. They bring in a special character just to talk about him being a liar, even when they were children, <laughs> who doesn't really contribute a lot. Uh, the, the police <laughs> detective who probably recurs in later movies. He does. He's Bud. I don't know what more to say. His name is not anything that I would think would become the nickname Bud, but it does. Again, I, 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 it goes back to the Murder, She Wrote reference point, which people watch for mindless escapist. If you view it in that lens, I think, okay, yeah, we've, we've taken these tropes and we've tried to give at least some gay male representation to it. I'm not even going to call it queer representation. It's no. pretty narrow. So in that regard, sure. And I guess in 2005, that was something, but it, it could have been so much more. So that, that, that kind of half answers the question I was about to next ask, which is, who will enjoy this movie? 
or will anyone enjoy this movie? Who, who do you who do you recommend or not recommend it to? Hmm. I don't recommend it to mystery fans. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, s- sorry, listeners. I assume that you're mystery fans. Only from a kitschy standpoint. I mean, you know, there's, you know, I'll go back and watch Kolchak, The Night Stalker, which is kitschy, but well, no, that also has other things that this doesn't have. Yeah, I think the only people I'd recommend it to is a very small audience back in 2005, because there's now, like, there's so many other avenues for queer representation that have come up in the past 16 years that are things that I would recommend over this. Is there any queer mystery? Um, let's let's look at it. Like, there were some lists in a minute, and I'm sure you'll have more reference point for some of these films. It's okay. But yeah, it's tough. I do think if you... I feel like it's a very it's a very safe movie and and some people are just looking for that sort of thing and escapist. Yeah. Um what were from this list what were some of the queer detective things you came across? I'll look that up. Harrison what about you? So you wouldn't recommend this to anyone? <laughs> I recommend it to fans of Hallmark movies and Lifetime movies because it's it's pretty easy viewing, you know. Probably want to be one or two more drinks in than we were when we viewed this movie. That might make it a little easier. Changing into a drinking game? And I would not recommend this to fans of the English dub of Inuyasha, because that's going to fuck with your, your head. <laughs> <laughs> Thing is, there aren't any real like mysteries. This is a list of top 10 great gay crime films. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, like Rope? Uh, yeah, I've seen Rope on a couple of these lists. Victim, 1961. Don't know that one. Um, the Fourth Man... When the Bow Breaks. Don't know it. An NBC television movie from October 1986. A heterosexual child psychologist, Alex Delaware, played by Ted Danson, takes down a ring of rich pedophiles who find their victims in a supposed safe house that they have endowed for troubled children. But Alex has been brought into the case by gay LAPD detective Milo Sturgis, who is a secondary character. Played by? Uh, Richard Mazur? Richard Mazur. Richard Mazur. Have you heard of Who Killed Cock Robin? I've heard of it. Did you say Cock Robin? Yes, Who Killed Cock Robin? No, I have not heard of that one. <laughs> it's a 1990 film. I think it's hard to find because I think I Googled it. Uh, San Francisco homicide detective Sergeant Henry Magdalena investigates the murders of a series of gay porn stars. Cock Robin, that's an old, old, like Mother Goose rhyme. You know, Who Killed Cock Robin? I said the sparrow with my bow and arrow. I killed Cock Robin. Yeah, and then there's like some little indie films and, and kind of silly things, but it's it's um it's I, I, that I will name one or two of the indie films. Oh, um, nine dead gay guys. Wow! What? <laughs> oh, I can tell you one which was wretched because it was really homophobic. But there was Partners, which came out in 1982. It was a buddy cop film. And this straight macho cop had to buddy up with a gay cop and go undercover as a gay cop. And it was, I I mean, it was, I I would have to, I saw it in 1982. I would have to go back and watch it now to see if it was intentionally homophobic making a point or if it was just homophobic. Hmm. That was... A movie sounds exhausting yeah i mean that's one of the that's one of the problems with some of these older movies i mean i would not recommend rope as a gay film it's all subtext in rope right 
It's all subtext. Yeah. And they're murders. It's based on Leopold. Oh, if you want to watch Rope, but want the real thing, Rope is based on the Leopold and Loeb murders in Chicago. In the late 80s, uh, there was a new queer cinema director, and I forget which one directed it. Was it Todd Haynes? It's called Swoon, S-W-O-O-N, which uses the same source material, but it's explicitly queer. Very arty. And again, I haven't seen it in 30 years, so I don't know how it holds up. But at the time, I remember really enjoying it. Yeah. The only other thing that came up really when I searched is the TV show Instinct, which had two seasons between 2018 and 2019. It looks like they adapted um, James Patterson's Murder Games. And because they cast Alan Cumming, they made the lead character gay and he has a partner. Hmm. But it's like a police procedural kind of mystery show. There's 24 episodes of that. I've never seen it or had never heard of it. So who knows? Kind of CBS police drama that we know and love. We forgot one, though. There's one that you didn't mention. Oh, yeah? Um, yeah, it's uh, it's, <laughs> it's the episode of the Golden Girls, The Case of the Libertine Bell. Very, very gay. Love it. Michael, how could you not mention that to me? I'm trying to think of which one that is. I, I absolutely must have seen it. Say, like, five things about it. Like, five words about it. Maybe I'll... Five words about it? <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Yep. So that so that's where we're at. You know, we'll we'll see if we uh... usually in, in 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 detective show. I mean, it was usually the gay characters that were getting killed off or blackmailed and killed yeah. off rather than solving the crime. That's that's the thing. So yeah, we'll we'll see uh, what we can dig up for next year. Maybe I'll look at books to do during Pride Month next year because I'm sure that someone has written a more contemporary queer murder mystery i read one oh god what was the name of it it was it was very like i would say almost independently published i randomly found it on right. amazon like during the birth of amazon where i was like oh books i can't find elsewhere <laughs> i want to read gay books um god but it was like set like mildly in the future where like technology was just slightly more advanced and it was like there was a detective and he was gay and there was also like a teenager who was a witch and there was like Virtual reality. I don't remember what it was called. It was wild. <laughs> the Wachowski siblings. Um, is Bound a detective? I haven't seen Bound in twenty five years. But was that at all detective or noirish? It was noir, but not detective. Neo noir crime thriller. Yeah, Bound had a very sort of like uh, noirish. Can't get the word out. Vibe to it. It it felt like it felt like a mystery. Yeah. Um. Definitely. Yeah. I know nothing about this movie, but going off of the poster presented by Wikipedia, is it not about a, a pair of goth lesbians? And if not, why not? <laughs> uh, Gina Gershon and one of the Tilly sisters. Jennifer Tilly. Yeah. Gina Gershon, who was the answer to one of the um, New York Times crossword clues this morning, and I had to look it up because <laughs> I oh, didn't really? know who it was. Was it a Showgirls reference? Yeah. Was they talking about Crystal? No, it was just like actress Gershon or something, and you just had to put oh, in her okay. first her first name. I, I love her in Showgirls because you could tell she totally knew exactly what was going on, and she yeah. played it up. She's fantastic. She can do no wrong. She's very good in Bound. I, I, I definitely recommend it. I, they made this before they made the Matrix uh, movies. So, yeah. So we've, we've talked all the way through this movie. Yeah, put it on in the background while you're doing other things. <laughs> and um, put it in the background. 
There's a podcast idea, movies to watch in the background while you're like cleaning the house. Um, if you do watch the movie, you are listeners and you have your own thoughts, feelings, uh, prayers for us. You can email those to us at dyingmessagepodcast.gmail.com and we will read those out on the show. Um, another thing I will say is, Harrison, I know you've been working on a lot of collages and stuff. What, what can you tell us about that and where can people find your work? Um, you can find my work on um, Instagram at HJS Collages. And I do a lot of just different sort of collages. Like it, I don't have a certain theme or discipline that I follow, but just check it out because there's a lot of interesting stuff on there that I think people will really enjoy. Is there like a favorite one that you've made so far? The most recent one I made was um, sand surfing, but in the background there's an embryo. So there you go. <laughs> well, thank you, Steve. Thank you, Harrison. Thank you. Thank you for having us. For devoting 20 minutes a night, five nights in a row to watch this film. <laughs> and then coming in and talking to us about it. <laughs> yeah, it, was, it, was, it was actually a lot of fun. I, I, I do think the show had its place and I'm glad that, you know, Chad Allen did what he did. The, the, the struggle for representation in media has been a long one and, you know, everything plays its piece. I, I certainly saw in the early nineties, a ton of really bad cinema, but I felt, you know, it was important to support it. So. And, and how, where does this fit into, <laughs> is this in that category for you? I think it is as earnest as all of them, um, I, 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 I mean, it tries. It's, it's doing a thing. And for that, you know, I give it credit. In terms of quality, it's honestly better because yeah. a lot of those early films, you know, it was like, you know, my friend's going to hold the boom mic and, you know, we're going to put this movie together with, you know, spit and glue and bubble gum. So, I mean, despite, you know, as Mike pointed out, the like sound quality issues in the big, large space and whatnot. I mean, the production, it, I mean, it was solid enough. It's just the script was so, I mean, it's, I, I, I get it when you're churning out a formula. There's, you know, a formula to it. But it was, I think the script was a little two-dimensional. Yeah, I think for me, it's, it's not in the category of like, you're going to watch this with your friends as a bad movie night. No. It's, for me, it's like the reason to watch this is because it's a time capsule. Like, if you want to be transported back to 2005 and 1992 in a weird mashup and think about, like, queer representation at that time and, like, some of the issues through this very, very narrow lens, um, it'll take you to that place. I think, fads of, I think fans of Chad Allen will like it, too. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. When you finish your um, Dr. Quinn Medicine Woman rewatch, <laughs> this can be next on your list. So what I do want to tell people is we will be returning to anime next week. And next week we'll be covering Detective Conan Episode 7, uh, which is the once-a-month present case where someone is receiving a mysterious present in the mail every month. Is there something sinister behind it? I will also say to our listeners, thank you so much for um, listening to us today when we branched out just a tiny bit and um, looked at something a little bit different. We really appreciate all of your support. You can keep in touch with us, Dying Message Podcast on Facebook, at Dying Message Pod on Twitter. The number one way you can help other people find our podcast is to rate and review us on uh, iTunes, on Apple Podcasts, um, a couple other podcasting services. Also, you can rate us or follow us. That helps spread the word. 
And uh, let us know what you thought about these movies. Send that email to dyingmessagepodcast at gmail.com. And if you have made a weird supercut of Inuyasha talking about weird seedy sex murders at a motel with no R editing, please send that along and we'll retweet it or uh, put the link out there. All right. So Stephen Harrison, I, I here's here's what I want to ask of you as we close out the podcast. If you were going to write a queer murder mystery, who would the detective be? What would they what would they look like? Like what kind of relationship would they be in? Or I don't know if that characterizes them. That doesn't have to. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> I wish you would have told me this at the top. I could have really thought, thought about something. I thought something. of the question 30 seconds ago. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, I got nothing, Steve. You, I'm sure you have something. I, I, I would definitely go for I, not Billy Eichner, the actor, but in terms of on difficult people, the character he played, where there was just you know lots of unspoken and casual sex everywhere. They would have a very sexually active life. Um, maybe played by Christopher Maloney, even though he's straight. Mm-hmm. But that type. <laughs> I just realized we completely overlooked one of the major queer uh, cruising. We did this entire podcast without talking about the movie Cruising. Mm. I don't know from Cruising. Oh, Al Pacino. It came out and then it was buried underground because it was considered to be very homophobic. And then in the past several years, it's been looked at in a different light saying, wait, let's look at this from 1980. And what is this movie saying and how is it being said? And I can't believe I'm saying this, but I've never actually seen it. You've never seen Cruising? I've never seen Cruising. I know, right? Have you, Harrison? I've seen Cruising. Do you like it? Is it problematic? Is it? I mean, it's problematic because it is of its time, but I think you should definitely watch it because it is an interesting film. I think it deserves to be watched. And it definitely ties into this whole thing we've been talking about. I can't believe... We went the whole thing without bringing it up. I don't know from it. I, I did. I think I did come across it in my Google searching and click on it because it looks familiar. But but yeah, I've certainly never seen it or, or heard about it that much. I mean, it's set in New York City um, meatpacking district S&M bars. I mean, it's it's the real deal. It's from 1980. But I do like the idea of the detective who has lots of casual sex and... Um, I guess, learns things from all their various partners. No, that would imply talking with them. (laughs) (laughs) This has been Dying Message Extra, Third Man Out, episode 39 of Dying Message, the detective anime mystery podcast recorded for Pride Month 2021. Extra podcast cover art created by Miriam Bloom. Music excerpted from Solve the Damn Mystery by Jesse Spillane. Thank you again to our extra special guests, Steve Kleinendler and Harrison Scantling. Coming up. What's the deal with those strange once-a-month presents? Would you notice if your close friend was turned into a child? Why is Conan Edegawa such a liar? All that and more when we next examine the scene of the crime for that fatal note. The Dying Message. Bye, I should have written down the name of the author. Um, uh, oh. No. No, I'm neglectful. <laughs> Hold on. <laughs>